the demand side of things i mean a big part of this is in the auto industrial value chains um and and whether or not i mean you know you often find you know people look for substitutes i mean if if people can get synthetic forms of platinum in catalytic converters and other things i mean surely they'll look for, for the same here that is a long term developmental um developmental mm. alternative it's nowhere near when you think about um, your short-term supply and what you're dealing with right now. Sure, sure, sure. Which is your actual supply. So a lot of people always say, but there's substitutes. But I'm like, so it echoes a tweet that um, Elon Musk tweeted last week about how, although his business is renewable energy, mm. you've got to increase the oil. Because right now, this is what's needed. And it basically follows the same logic. Yeah. And then I guess on, on the part of the gold price, I mean, you did say a big part of it is around risk sentiment and uh, seen as a safe haven by many and uh, a lot, I guess, put into it. Um, just what's your reading of how this conflict is unfolding? I mean, what, what ideally should we anticipate this time next week when it comes to some of these commodity prices? Actually, it depends on how talks go. So for me, I reserved my opinion on what I think is going to happen until next week. Fundamentally, this conflict needs to end. I don't think we realize um, it, 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 it's very different when um, when there's a conflict in Africa or Middle East when you don't because of the interlinkages are not as significant. Russia, grain, palladium, oil, gas. This is not a this is not something that's quite small, and the ripple effects even in the past week, has been so significant. So for me personally, they need to, uh, uh, they need to just, you know, Uvlad, uh, Uvlad, like, they just need to make peace because we're going to suffer here in Southie and it has nothing to do with us. That is the, that is, that is the problem when Russia enters into a conflict, the fact that we're held at ransom and here in South and it has nothing to do with us. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with us. And that's the most part, the fact that we're suffering because we have nothing to do with I want us to, um, I guess, uh, shift away slightly from commodity prices and uh, look at some of the big piece of news that came through today and uh, in the news-wise. The Foschini Group uh, seems uh, beating Pepco to the chase to acquire Tapestry, uh, which uh, are the owners of Corey Craft, Dyla Bed, Volpe's and uh, other uh, entities for around 2.35 billion rand, of course, subject to uh, approval by the competition authorities. But what do you make of this one? Um, so in the past two years, I think the pandemic has shifted focus from um, from a retail business. There's been quite significant growth in your homeware. And you saw it in terms of the two acquisitions I think we've seen before. Uh, Mr. Price acquiring uh, Yassi Chef and other Boshini going into tapestry. Um, Pipco expanding their homeware offering as well is because it is quite a very... It's a, it's a growth node, number one. Number two, it is margin-wise much better. And it also goes, it's not as um, trend-focused as your other, as um, their other products, are mainly in fashion and beauty. It's not trend. It's literally every year you're going to replace your comforter. Mm-hmm. 
you can't better. And if you look at, um, they, they've seen very good results. And that's why there's been so many acquisitions in the area, in the area because of the niche market of it, um, the targeting a higher LSM, um, group, which is not as, uh, sensitive to the possibility of a resurgence in the sense of this, uh, conflict. That we're in, so uh, with the rest, uh, with the conflict, so it's yeah, it's it's, it's it's for me, it's yeah, presents quite a few opportunities. Very, um, I think I do think that they pay pay highly for it, but we'll see if the investment um lifts off because you can see in terms of the Pushini Group, um, you've got the at home brand, mm. you've got great groups, and you and you'll see with tapestry, um, you can see sort of the interlinkages and the possibility of growth and you can see what they're trying to do with it. But I just think that they pay quite richly for it, but just see. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, if you think about the store print here, uh, but also the fact that Tapestry has its own manufacturing operations, and that might contribute to uh, TFG's own strategy of becoming a vertically integrated player here. So manufacturing the clothes that they sell, you know, on their shop floor as well. Um, I mean, I guess they probably would have wanted to pay a premium for that. Um, Yes and no. Yes and no. So... Um, virtual integration um, sounds nice if you can unlock the value and um, drive up your profitability from it. So a lot of people like the idea of virtual inter- integration. And however, that also changes. It also makes you susceptible to um, things like your ESCOM. Mm. Your ESCOM, it makes you bring in a greater labor participation greater capital investment as well. So like I always say, when people say vertical integration is nice in theory if you can yield the efficiency in it. Yeah, and I guess if it can also give you fat markups. Yeah. And you could you need the price bump. Mm, mm. So so the other things that's about I mean I'm quite interested in your thoughts on is um sort of the, the synergies with the existing you know, fashion retail plays in the TFG stable. Um, you know, often acquisitions like this, some of us tend to think it's just a plug and play. Uh, but I'm quite interested, I guess, with what you know about fashion retail, whether or not um, there might be a lot of transitional costs associated with, you know, creating synergies between this and the existing offering that, um, that TFG Yes, right. I do, I do see quite a high significant spend on your information technology. Mm. But I also see, um, but I also see quite where the synergy comes in is the complementing product range. You've got at home uh, Grey Goose, which is which makes a specific type of product. But now you're going into more actual furniture production, so it does for me. It does. There are synergies um, if you look at at home versus um, Corey Craft. Um, you see their products uh, similar. Yeah, so I do. I, I sort of see where it's going, what they would like to do. But like I said, I, I'm just curious to find out um, um, what the profit margin is going to look like this time next year. Mm. Because I think that's where Rose will tell us this is a very, very good acquisition.
Yeah, yeah. And I guess their reading of, um, you know, where where the South African consumer is, uh, I mean, we've certainly seen in, um, you know, fashion retail and even in grocery retail, a lot of big players, consolidation happening at the bottom end of the market, where the mass market is. What do you make of this one? Uh, the SA consumer, we're in the ghetto. We're in the ghetto. That's the best way I can explain it. Um, I see a lot, because of the impending um, increase in petrol price, I see a lot of product substitution. So it makes things that are geared towards the lower end of the market for me, I think, are, provide more attractive alternatives as opposed to those in the higher end, in my opinion. But uh, we shall see. Yeah. Like we, we shall see. Like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm open to being proven wrong. Mm, mm. So let's look at Packaging Group, Impact. Uh, they put out uh, a set of numbers here. They're in the uh, plastics and uh, packaging space. Uh, what do you make of, uh, I guess, their set of numbers and a strong showing by their plastics business, generous dividend as well. And uh, we also saw a uh, bought back a um, considerable amount of their shares as well. Um, yes, they did. Um, yes, they did. It was actually quite a, it was quite, they did, they did produce quite a good result. The CEO, um, CFO also um, made a comment about how plastic is usually seen as a substitute product. Mm. And um, because of we are converting to a more greener world, that it, it, they were talks of just removing plastic altogether, but it's had a very, very strong showing. Um, they have been hit by supply chain constraints and they started buying more raw materials. And a lot of their profitability, which is when you unpack their results, so they had an increase in year, year on year, when I look at the revenue comparison, going up by 12%. But you see profitability going up by fifty percent, which shows that they did they did comment that in twenty twenty they took quite a aggressive look at their business model and embarked on quite significant cost cutting exercises mm. and um sentiment and focused purely on unlocking efficiency along their production value chain. Like it's pretty much the same thing we were saying about um TFG and mm. and um Chiefs. You can unlock the value in your production chain. Next quite a big difference and how they've also embarked on um, greening their and, and, and limiting their resistance, their reliance, sorry, their reliance mm. on ESCOM with setting up solar power plants and, um, um, I mean, um, solar generation because ultimately it's a manufacturing concern. Yeah. Sensible, we also yeah. know, I mean, I guess that uh, a big part of any packaging business is that its state of health is always reliant on its downstream customers, be it in the food, beverages, pharmaceuticals and, and other value chains. I mean, this showing by impact, what, what does it tell us, I guess, about the state of health of critical consumer product markets in South Africa? Um, so what, for me, what this um, shows is that it's, um, firstly, they've been driven by demand. Ultimately, driven by demand has been um, and um, um, definitely has, has made quite a significant um, impact as well as um, their investment in um, in um, in recycling has done mm. has done wonders for them, but it just shows just the, the lot of work that they've put in 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 the way work put in because yeah, if you look at it, that's why I say if you focus purely on the revenue and do the profitability, it's it's been more on profitability than on um, than on um, than on actual revenue growth. And um, it's been about 
just getting into um, um, lots of getting into debt with your customers and, you know, securing those relationships, securing those relationships, which I think has been quite important. Securing definitely very much. And also what they've also done is they're selling their um, plastic trays and films uh, business first the pack. And also, yeah, yeah, it's, like I said, it's been driven primarily because if you look at, like I said, the top percent revenue, only 8% increase in sales volume and only a 3.8%. So they've been squeezed quite a bit from mm. a margin, to, from a price, to price increase, ability increase prices. But because they've invested so significantly in their operations, it hasn't been as bad as it looks. And I guess, you know, is the comparison fair? Um, and I say this just in light of the comment you made earlier on on demand. To compare, I guess, this set of numbers, um, you know, end of uh, the year 31 December to 31 December 2020, just from a product market perspective, I mean, um, effectively demand uh, would have been muted for some of their key customer segments and, of course, uh, I guess would have surged for others. Uh, but is is it... Is the comparator year, I guess, a fair one to make? And uh, should we maybe be comparing this number to the 2019 number? Um, yes and no. Um, yes and no. Um, a lot of who their clients are were not necessarily shut down during the hard lockdown. So they may have been offered lower demand, mm. but they were not part of the, um, specifically, if you think of FMCG. Because remember, they follow the same cycle as FMCG. Yes, yes. That's FMCG. So you saw that although you had muted demand, you still had relatively demand. So that's one of the reasons why, um, from a South African perspective, they weren't, it's, they're not one of those entities where we can um, uh, um, say that uh, FMCG didn't have a good year. Mm. Mm-hmm. In South Africa, it, it, it was new to demand, but it wasn't a situation where they were shut down. Sure, sure. Then, Stesipo, we know the war is unfolding out in Ukraine. Um, and uh, I guess, uh, depending on what you call it, I mean, military, specialized military operation. Uh, and uh, we saw the president's clarification of the South African position earlier on today. But there's, there's also been, I guess, the reemergence of what are called war bonds. Now, what's a war bond? Skylab. Uh, a war bond is a facility a country raises purely for the purchase of um, weapons and all and other military um, funding spend. It's a specific purpose. Now, an um, interesting thing is that these were introduced early in the 20th century in World War One. Um, there were talks uh, World War One and World War Two. There were talks uh, of it allows. Um, countries to crowdfund and specifically raise for specific purpose. And so they're, from a pricing perspective, it's not necessarily driven by your yield. It's really driven by your goodwill affiliation to a country. And because the tenure tends to be very, very, very long and the yields yield need to be muted. Um, very for me, it's. I think it's. It's a lot of. Um, I think quite, quite interesting, um, concept on um, the war bonds and the, the structure of them. 
what I found interesting is that um, when I was checking it out on um, Bloomberg, was some of the yields um, in the Ukraine. So you've got yields um, of 11%, which I thought was quite high. But when you're trying to um, raise significant amount of money, Money, amount of money. Um, so the first war bonds he had a yield of about eleven percent, and that's quite, quite, quite. It's actually quite, quite, quite significant, and and it is one of those. It one is one of those most interesting things um, that have come up. Whether or not that will be enough, I don't particularly think so. Mm-hmm. Um, the Russians been spending on Russians spent comparatively on par with the U.S. when it comes to their military. So it's not even an apple-to-apple comparison, but it is a way for um, financial institutions um, and other um, investors Mm -hmm. in and or to directly contribute to Ukraine's efforts. So, 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 so but these things have a history as well, right? I mean, there's a history in the 20th century where we saw two world wars in their use. Um, Might be helpful, I guess, to paint some of that as well. Yeah, so like I said, um, you had situations where they tried to, they used it in World War, in the 20th century of World War One. Mm. Um, more recently, um, Greece tried to do, um, in 2012, the diaspora bonds. Um, you had in 2020, the U.S. also considering um, corona bonds to fight coronavirus. Um, coronavirus. Um, so, the concept in itself is not foreign, nor is it unheard of. It's purely, instead of having a general bond, which what countries normally like Africa, with, with the National Trade Union, uh, issuance of bonds, it is, and we always have with general expenditure. So these ones are specifically tied to a specific channel mm. of funds and application. So what adds credence to this is that in the registration of documents and also when they rethink the documents, they, they, they say, okay, we're going to buy these um, grenades and these tanks. This is what we're going to do with it. So there's a greater transparency on it. Mm. But, but does, it, does, does, it, present, of, does yeah. it present a viable way for many to support the war effort on the side of Ukraine without or short of... I guess, um, proper military support because Ukraine, I guess, isn't a member of NATO. Um, but but does it give, I guess, many people in the West, because a big part of it is this whole sort of not only just the patriotism, but extending solidarity to what might be seen as an ally against, I guess, the old foe, which is um, you know, Russia. And I guess I'm oversimplifying it here. But does it present, I guess, a much easier avenue for many of those who might want to lend support to the Ukrainian offensive without necessarily having to send tankers or to send, you know, um, flying jets and whatever? Of course. It's literally that I think is ultimately its purpose. It's, it's, purpose. it's to channel, it's to allow people to actually support with putting money, because that's what's actually needed. Putting money and, and, and having them fund these specifically used. That, for me, I think is um, their their main their main uh, their main thing. But ultimately, for me, this is a this is basically a David Goliath battle. Um, and for me, when I look at it from an economic perspective, 
and a geopolitical international relations perspective. Ultimately, NATO can't intervene. Direct military action with NATO will trigger Russian aggression, which will escalate the situation. You've got to constrain it in Ukraine. Ultimately, you've got to. You have no other choice. It's a function of dare. And and you um, and with the Russians looking at this as not just um, a bullying tactic, but um, a, a reuniting of part of their homeland, it's very much based on um, that level of um, Mother Russia. Nice. Mother Russia. So yeah. So one of my um, someone explained one of the, one of the best descriptions is if we decide to invade the pieces. <laughs> we once tried. Oh, I do not recommend. We once oh, tried. Guys. It was not a good idea. It who was not tried? Don't idea. say we tried. Who tried? <laughs> we know who tried. We know who tried. This is what. Let's leave it there. As always, a pleasure yeah. catching up with you, and uh, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. That there was Nesipo Maninjwa, independent market commentator, analyst, and the CA. Yeah, you might want to comment on that. Uh, yeah, feel free to do so, and uh, you can give us a shout on 089-110-3377. We are on our WhatsApp line, 079-191-4270. The other big piece of business news that came through today, two fires breaking out at Transnet's container terminals in Pier 2.